0: We're doing this show about millionaires on the 10th anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the biggest bankruptcy in American history. And I think it behooves us to take a moment and, and, and try to understand uh, Americans' relationship with great wealth. Uh, we obviously have a love-hate relationship with our millionaires. Uh, am I wrong? Now, I think you're right. I think that's actually
1: sort of hardwired into American culture. Back mm-hmm. to the Puritans who had this paradox. They're supposed to work as hard as they possibly can and maybe get wealthy. But if you do, you're supposed to feel bad about it <laughs> uh, and, and to do something with it. So I think that there's a kind of instability uh, in that core belief of Americans. And then it really takes off, of course, you know, after the Civil War when there starts to be lots of new kinds of wealth that is visible in ways that's never been before in U.S. history.
0: Mm. So, Nathan, where do we
2: get this self-made man thing from? Well well I think part of it is absolutely an aftermath of a moment where you know many of the people who had the most money were slave masters in the south for instance and there wasn't necessarily the argument that one could make that you were self-made if you had 400 slaves for instance right yeah. so that comes later in the 19th century when you have I- european immigration coming in populating many of the cities of this country industrialization enables the creation of these sectors where people are able to make money even if they come in without inherited wealth so again Andrew Carnegie is one of these types, but there are a number of stories about the self-made man or the the person who's pulling him or herself up by their own bootstraps. All of that becomes part of the culture that makes up the Gilded Age, to use the old Mark Twain phrase, you know, that really does mark this period. I mean, I think it's it's also important to note that the late 19th and early 20th century becomes this moment where, because people are apparently self-made, they also then are able to have opinions about any number of things that have to deal with, you know, the social world that they're inhabiting. So someone like Carnegie can write, you know, a ton of essays or give speeches that are about things like, you know, race or wealth or land or, you know, a moral upright upbringing. And that becomes a start for people to then model their own behavior upon.
1: Yeah. And I think that it's not an accident that the word millionaire is invented in the same time that Nathan is describing. Uh... And I think implicit in the idea is not just that you inherited this money, but that somehow you're new to it and you have responsibility for it. And Mm. it's also on display. There are new places that you can see millionaires as they're riding around on their palace cars, on their railroads, and as they're building the mansions in Fifth Avenue in New York City. There's just a new visibility as well as a new preponderance of wealth in this period. So I think it's interesting that along with the rationale for philanthropy comes the rationale for
0: why people deserve this. So so let's think a little bit about cultural representations of mm. those rich people. I mean, if we want to go all the way to the 1980s, I, I, I think about lifestyles of the rich and famous, uh, a very popular TV show at a, a, another moment when Americans are enamored of the rich. But I also think of all those screwball comedies in the 1930s. Um, I think about bringing up Baby, where the museum is bailed out by a millionaire. But, you know, those rich people seem, number one, goofy. Hmm. Number two, like, they haven't really earned or at least worked hard for their money. And number three, they seem damn unhappy. Um, (laughs) Thank goodness. (laughs) <laughs> so I, I, I think now, of course, this is uh, during the Great Depression in the 1930s. It's not surprising that films would kind of make fun of the rich. But, but I think throughout American history, uh, rich people have been represented as, well, maybe not quite really deserving that money.
2: Yeah, I mean, there there was absolutely, I think, a, a way one felt comfortable poking um, fun or mocking or even, you know, condemning wealthy people or thinking about their gains as almost, you know, ill-gotten. So it's a wonderful life, you know, so much of the narrative device in that movie, again, right, from right. the... Golden Age is about these unscrupulous dealings that almost run a whole town into the ground, right? Um, And you have the the working-class hero that basically has to save the day. Um, Or you think about a a film, you know, I Love My Musical, so Fiddler on the Roof, you know, is a great kind of mid-1960s display of, you know, Jewish life in Eastern Europe. It has a great line from this song, If I Were a Rich Man, that describes that people will somehow believe you even if you're totally wrong about what you're saying simply because you're rich, right? It won't make one bit of difference if I answer right or wrong. When you're rich, they think you really know. So it's, again, kind of mocking, even in the case of someone who's pining. To be rich, um, yeah, I think you're, you're you're right, Brian, that the '80s in some ways represents such a sharp break in the sense of a kind of bold celebration of wealth and accumulation as being another measure, again, a kind of second gilded age of whether or not somebody is doing or knowing the right things.
1: Well, I have a very deep thought to share with you, Nathan, and and to ask you if it would if it would challenge your perspective. And that thought is the Beverly Hillbillies, Uh Uh, the the most popular show in the United States throughout the 1960s when there were some other things going on in the culture, I understand. Um, (laughs) And so what do you make of that, of that show? Now, I will admit uh, many people on the show talk like me and my family, uh, and we couldn't help but notice that people all over America were laughing at us, um, uh, but we couldn't figure out if because they were undeservedly rich or because they were hicks, Uh, and we just chose to believe that this was actually a critique of millionaires rather than uh, one more uh, poke at hillbillies. Could I just (laughs) add,
0: Ed, that it seemed that they always were the smartest people in the room
2: by the end of the show? Exactly. Exactly. That's so right. So you think that's what it is, huh? That's right. Yeah, it was absolutely a wink and a nod and a jab at, you know, West Coast elite Beverly Hills lifestyle, right? And and these folks with their, you know, dead possums in the pot and always wearing mm-hmm. the same clothes mm-hmm. in spite of all their millions, <laughs> they, they actually were smarter than Mr. Drysdale and all the other, you know, well-heeled Beverly Hillians um, living out there. Absolutely.
1: But, you know, the fact is that a millionaire just isn't a millionaire like they used to be. There's mm. 11 million of them in the United States now. The problem is they don't come clearly labeled. I think a mm. lot of these millionaires have all that net worth wrapped up in uh, big home mortgages or maybe college tuitions or right, maybe right. 401ks they'll cash in when they're too old to enjoy them. But <laughs> it's not really clear exactly exactly. Who's a millionaire and what kind of social meaning that has anymore? I, I think we, we're we going to have to up our game and talk about billionaires if we're going to be talking about the sort of mm. the same social consequences.
2: Yeah, so the, the, the political scene is, is, a, is an amazing one. I, I'm reminded of the election in 2000, if you can believe it, um, Al Gore and George W. Bush. And it was a remarkable effort on Gore's part to try to get Americans to understand that the proposed tax cut coming from the Republican Party was not going to benefit them. And he had the statistic based off of polling data that 25% of Americans believe they were part of the top 5%, right? <laughs> so, so most Americans who are doing okay think they're actually doing better than they are. Um, and, You've and this, also
0: seen how Americans test on math scores, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, so maybe it was just the percentages that were confusing them. But I don't think so, Brian. And, I, and I'll tell you why. And you flash forward to 2016, right? And in 2016, you have two guys from New York with very similar kinds of East Coast accents who are reaching very different constituencies in Donald J. Trump and, say, Bernie Sanders. And they're both running populist campaigns of different kinds. And I think it really does point to this split in the way that most people understand their situation. We're on the one- hand, you have folks from across a variety of class spectrums who believe that Donald Trump will represent them, that they want to be like him, that the job of a good American is to become a millionaire or a billionaire. Contrast that with someone like Sanders, who's running a very clear populist campaign from the left. He believes that you should have a much more expansive social safety net. And I think that that divide, really, between folks who were thinking of, about themselves as a millionaire in the making and those who were saying, you know what, we need to find a better way to reinvest in the public for everybody, that that's going to be you know, what determines our politics going forward in, in large measure.